Hey folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. Obviously, I'm looking for you to join the Tortoise Shack and help support this left-leaning progressive podcast platform. Continue to put out the content that there are literally thousands of you listening to. And the way you do that is you click the link at the top of the podcast that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. I just want to say thanks to everybody for the feedback to the Dara O'Brien interview. Negative and positive. It's all welcome. It's We are just doing our best to try and actually ask the questions even if we aren't satisfied with the answers we received and also think I thought it was quite touching some of the messages I received in relation to Luke Ming Flanagan's uh, talk discussion he had with us in relation to his own struggles with mental health and we're very grateful that he shared that with us and you our listeners anyway one more time please go to the Patreon link I can't tell you how difficult it is to try and maintain your independence especially when the first thing people are cutting in this cost of living crisis is the discretionary spending so we know it's tough out there and we need your help to keep the mics on and the conversations going I'm going to stop rabbiting on enjoy the podcast <laughs> Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. I'm delighted to be joined back on the podcast today by Dr. Tom McDonald, who is the director of the Nevin Economic Research Institute. Tom has been on the podcast a number of times, and listeners are probably well familiar. Um, Tom is a longtime economist and expert in the whole area of political economy, um, and the wider, um, I suppose, Irish economy, what's happening. And the Nevin Economic Research Institute produced many reports on the economy. Um, I'm going to talk today, Tom was also a member of the Commission on Taxation and there was a great crack this week um, over the Fine Gael renegades who uh, pushed the idea of cutting tax for the the hard-pressed uh, middle-income earners, and we're going to talk about that, and we're also going to talk about generally where the economy is going um, and inequality within it, and what do we what do we think is going to happen in terms of the economy in the coming uh, months and years, in terms of cost of living, the interest rates, um, and the wider issue of what can we address, what can we do to address our major infrastructure gaps and housing and climate and transport. So really looking forward to this. Tom, thanks a million for coming on Reboot again. My absolute pleasure, Rory. Great to be here. Great, great to have you. Tom, if we can start with the question of the economy and where it's at now, um, and particularly the question of the interest rates. And where do you see that going? Because a lot of people are um, struggling with the cost of living. Obviously, interest rates means you know higher mortgages, um, but also then, of course, higher cost of borrowing for people looking to buy a home. Um, and the wider feeds into wider costs in the economy in terms of businesses trying to borrow. Um, where where do we see this going? And inflation as well, then as well. Um, in terms of inflation, the rising cost of living, which is is still increasing. Um, where do you see those kind of? Key- well, just in terms of interest rates, first of all, the European Central Bank have made it very clear that. We can expect another half a percentage point increase in June and then another half a percentage point increase in July. After that, it's not clear, but it's likely that interest rates won't come down now in 2023. I, I don't think it'll be till 2024 before they, before they really start to do that. One of the problems 
is that monetary policy, which is which is what we're which is the area that's responsible for interest rates, tends to operate with a very big lag. Usually, it's about nine months or so, give or take. So the increases that were brought in nine months ago should only be affecting the economy now. If that makes sense. So the problem is. The ECB can keep pushing and pushing and pushing and actually push things too far. And they won't know when they make those decisions, whether they've pushed things too far. So my own view is, is that they need to be very, very careful. Uh, the Irish economy at the moment is uh, thundering along very strongly, surprisingly. Uh, we have record low unemployment rates, record high employment. Uh, we have enormous su labor supply gaps, particularly in construction, but other areas too. In terms of inflation, uh, well, we're likely to see inflation of somewhere around 5% this year. And that's on top of the 8% we had last year. So 13% combined over those two years. And obviously, as you know, Rory, the government failed to protect low-income households in the budget last year. And then we're probably looking at another 3 maybe 3.5% three inflation next year. Because the prices are not coming down. They're just going to go up at a slower rate than they have been before. So it's going to get increasingly tough for lower income, fi fixed income households. And we know that the deprivation rate increased from 13.8% to 17.7% last year. That's an enormous increase. Uh, and certain cohorts now, uh, certain cohorts of households are experiencing real income trouble. Uh, so we're seeing a very much divided society at the moment of, of those people that are doing very, very well and have record savings and other households that are increasingly find, finding it difficult to cope with the cost of living. Yeah, just on the, before we come on to the impacts and that deprivation figure, which is very stark, um, that increase, uh, that's a phenomenal increase. And of course, that 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 is an average figure. And as you say, there's particular groups um, affected more than others within that. Um, the question of the wider economy and the economic growth that is ongoing um, and how real that is, within the economy because we know we have the activities of multinationals and there's you know huge discussion on that ongoing um but we know also that, that businesses are struggling that the you know the cost of living impact surely that must be having an impact on the domestic economy in terms of people's ability to purchase goods to spend in the economy um and businesses must be being affected in that way as well yeah we have a very unusual economic situation at the moment. You're absolutely right. Obviously, the headline GDP figures are tainted by the, let's let's be blunt about it, the, the tax planning activities of a few firms. And these corporation tax windfall receipts really just come down to about four or five, four or five firms uh, that did very well during COVID. But in terms, of, in terms of the economy, we do have record low unemployment rates. So there's certainly jobs available at the moment. The issue is that wages have not kept pace with inflation. So that, so you're right, absolutely right. Real incomes are falling. Uh, they're falling for workers. They're falling for pensioners. They're falling for people that are unemployed. Uh, they're falling for people with disabilities and so on. So you would think, yeah, this is going to affect the economy. How could it not? The thing is, during the COVID period, uh, Irish households built up record savings, historically enormous levels of savings. So there is an element of running down those savings to a certain extent, and that's buttressing the economy in some respects. So spending in the economy is still doing relatively well. Retail sales overall are not brilliant, but uh, 
purchases of cars, for example, are very strong. Again, a middle-class purchase. So we're seeing, again, that bifurcation. Some households are doing very, very well. Again, we're looking at lots of middle-class households flying out of Dublin airports to go around the continent. Uh, we're seeing people buying cars. We're seeing uh, enormous demand for housing stock. Uh, uh, but what we are also seeing is increasingly households falling into deprivation. In terms of businesses, uh, some businesses are, are doing very well. Certain, certain sectors are doing very well. We've heard about a wage price spiral, but, but perhaps what we have to a certain extent is a profit price spiral. Uh, so uh, most businesses are doing okay, actually, and the economy is doing quite well, and, and there is a demand for workers in some sectors that just can't be fulfilled because there aren't enough people to actually do it. And we can't even bring in enough people from other countries because we have nowhere uh, for them to live at affordable at affordable rates. Um, so there's there, there's a lot going well in some respects, but there's a there's a lot of storm clouds. And of course, we're, we're increasingly seeing we believe younger people leave the country for other parts of Europe and, and, and abroad because rental rental costs are so high, and that's driving people out. And of course, many of them will never return. In a way, then, you know, the economy has been, the way it has developed, the huge, you know, over-dependence on tech, and we have been arguing, you know, for this, you've been arguing, if I've been arguing it for, you know, well over a decade, you know, since the crash, and, you know, myself and yourself were among people, uh, the small group during austerity back I was trying to think my god Tom like it's 2010 that's 13 years ago when we launched the plan B program which was making the case for not cutting during austerity and for increasing taxes on wealth and income and for continuing to invest in the key infrastructure but nobody fucking listened to us (laughs) Nobody listens. I know. And we even passed a referendum. What? We even passed a referendum. Which one was that? Oh, the one to the fiscal, the fiscal compact. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. The fiscal compact. Yeah, that one. Um, But irrespective of that one, like that we were making those arguments back then that the need you could you needed to continue to invest in infrastructure. But the government and the economic strategy and the economic planning was essentially foreign funds will sort it out for us. Foreign investment will sort it out for us. They'll build our build to rent housing and they will build the new jobs and they'll build the new offices and they'll build the new tech. And basically government Ireland will limp along in its shadow. And essentially that decade of austerity and underinvestment has caught up with us. We're now the economic growth is basically jeopardized and the continuing economic development of the country by that failure to invest. And it wasn't just a failure. It was a political decision not to invest. It was. And and, 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 I mean, the way it gets described now is the economy has capacity constraints, which means that we just don't have the infrastructure to actually support economic growth and all these extra jobs in the economy. Capacity constraints is... A very nice way of saying we have failed to invest in the economy and we yeah. have failed to invest in housing and infrastructure and all of these things you talk about, Rory. But this is the point that it's not like this just happened and we've, we, you know, that it's, and it's still 
the arguments around investment is still stuck in that mindset of we need to, you know, in- incentivize private capital. We need the state still needs to play this, you know, um, restricted role. We'll put our twenty six billion into a fund for the future. We won't actually invest it in infrastructure and the social infrastructure, the transport systems, the climate response, the housing, the. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. And look, obviously, obviously, ideology is part of it because there's no economic law that suggests it's a bad idea for state to invest in these things. So, look, we we do have this corporation tax windfall, um, which is probably not sustainable. There are obvious things we could do with it. Obviously, we should possibly, I would argue, I'm sure you would too, Rory, uh, set up some kind of housing semi-state, uh, like an ESB for housing that will directly build build our, ourselves we have yeah. we could use a fund to just set it up it's got its initial seed capital it can borrow on the markets like like a regular company at that point if it want providing genuine cost rental uh alongside that we could set up a fund to basically pay for the, the, the it might be multiple decades but it's basically once off costs of the net zero green transition right charging infrastructure yeah. retrofitting all of the things we need to do Plus paying paying for the retraining, reskilling that's required for a just transition, and, and then alongside that we could have a little rainy day fund, which uh, has money in the bank that we can basically unleash whenever the economy falls into recession. That could be parachute payments or something like that, for example, just to keep spending up so we don't get a crash like we did in two thousand and eight. So it's 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 eminently possible. There's no reason we can't do that. What I wouldn't do with windfall receipts. Is tax cuts because uh, we we need our tax base to pay for our public services, public sector wages, unemployment payments, old age payments. So current spending and taxes need to be aligned broadly over the longer term. But we have this fund now that will allow us to pay once off costs, once off setting up costs for housing, and once off costs of a, of a net zero transition, and and have some money left over for a little rainy day fund for the next recession. And so bring us bring us on then. I just want to talk briefly about the, that bifurcation you talked about, that split in the economy, um, this divide between you know the those who are and you know are they middle class? Are they probably more accurately described upper middle class? Even the 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 rich as such that those who can actually afford electric cars um, and afford the multiple holidays. Uh, abroad and then you know I would say they are more likely to be in their probably mid 40s 50s um, 60s there is a massive generational gap to this um, and a social class gap then as well in terms of groups and also in terms of people for example with family members uh, with a disability um, you look at groups particularly you know, one parent families headed by women, um, that these groups are substantially worse affected by the cost of living crisis, um, by the issue of when you talked about deprivation there, I was looking at the deprivation figures for um, those in receipt of the social housing assistance supports, which would be the likes of the housing assistance payment. And that figure has risen in terms of after they pay their rent, 
there are now over two-thirds, close to 70% of those who are in receipt of a social housing assistance, which means they're in the private rental sector getting support towards their rent, are in poverty after they pay their rent. And that's a phenomenal, phenomenal number. You're talking about 40,000, 50,000 households in the rental sector, like deeply insecure, many of them with families, children, many of the families with children, as I said, many uh, one-parent families as well, that this kind of inequality, because on the other hand, the Gini coefficient will be shown as just, you know, uh, easing along, you know, the Gini coefficient, which shows levels of inequality, no major change. Yet we can see, you know, and, and the data is there to show that actually inequality is growing in Ireland. What would you think of that? What what would your analysis say? Yeah, no, Rory, I, I broadly agree with everything you said there. And look, Gini coefficient measures income inequality, as you say. But we also need to look at wealth inequality. So, for example, you have two households and they're, they're the same incomes. But one owns their house and the other has to pay rent, which could be two, two and a half thousand, two, two, two and a half thousand a month. So they're not in the same circumstances. So we, wealth inequality has to be increasingly be part of the debate. And, and, and you pointed to, to, to it yourself there when you talked about intergenerational inequality. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing an older generation that is relatively comfortable in, in many cases and a younger generation that is is increasingly living at home into their 30s, which is making it very difficult to establish relationships, form family, all of these things, which is a huge psychological cost. Yeah. So we really have a social cohesion issue here. And, and, and the cohesion is it, it, it split on generational lines. So this means the older generation needs to acknowledge what it's done, that it's rigged the system for itself, uh, to a large extent, and that it needs now, and, and we're, if we're talking about people in their 50s, early 60s, late 40s, they tend to be high, high income groups. Yeah. High, and therefore, this whole argument about cutting income taxes should be seen as particularly egregious in, in that context. Not only would it be regressive, not only would it have close to zero economic benefit, because who amongst that group are actually going to stop working if their taxes go up by a, a couple percentage? The answer is close to zero. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's bad for inequality. It's bad for the economy. It means less money for public services and social social payments. And it would all and it wouldn't even do anything for the economy at the moment. It wouldn't stimulate demand because they'll just save the money and and or create extra extra inflation. So this whole debate about income tax cuts is simply exacerbated. Will simply if if it's pursued, will simply exacerbate the problems that we've seen in terms of a bifurcated society. It's very lasting, which is insane. And just following on from that, the, the other issue that will come up is likely to come up around the discussion of the, the forthcoming budget because the the National Economic Dialogue takes place um, in or around when we're talking about this podcast early June. Um, talk, not talk, <laughs> talking on the podcast, not about the podcast. Um, the which is where the government uh, brings in um, different unions, business, NGOs. I requested an invite, Tom, but um, they don't seem to want me. They say it's full, no room at the inn for the likes of Rory. What have I got to contribute anyway? Um, indicative of, a, I think, a, a regime that uh, doesn't want to, to listen. But anyway, I think it is fair to classify it as the Ancien regime at this point and uh, is on its last legs. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> Tom's having a good laugh with that one. 
The uh, um, but the national economic dialogue takes place. The uh, and you will be there, and others will be there, uh, carrying the torch for um a different type of society and economy. But the question of the tax cuts, you were part of the Commission on Taxation, uh, the Sinn Féin funded Commission on Taxation, uh, which obviously I'm saying in jest there because that's what Leo Varadkar described it as. Um, and is it true that Fine Gael didn't even make a submission to the Commission? Uh, I couldn't tell you offhand, but but certainly it was the government that set up the Commission. So yeah. Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Greens collectively would have done that as part of the programme for government. And but we were independent, of course. And I suppose when you allow people to be independent, that means sometimes you don't get the result that you want. Um, and therefore, you can, you know, throw fits and complain about some of the findings when they don't fit your ideological worldview. So, so for example, we called for increasing taxes on on wealth. Seems yeah. pretty straightforward. Uh, but no, the the attitude was nope. That's our base. We were definitely we're definitely not going to do that even though the Independent Commission on Tax and Welfare uh, recommended it. Uh, so what we have now, a few months later, is these calls for income tax cuts. So yeah. it's as though the Commission on Tax and Welfare is just completely ignored because they didn't like what it said. So, yeah. you know, just pure populism to, to, to benefit a particular interest group, which in this case is the better off. Absolutely. And, and just a question on that, the Commission on Taxation, did you look at income taxes specifically and... What were your recommendations around it? Yeah, our recommendations overall uh, on tax as a whole was a tax with tax as a percentage of national income. And this was actually our most important finding and our number one finding, which is the government's revenue base from tax and social insurance overall would need to go up and would need to go up meaningfully. So quite significantly. What we also said was that your first port of call should be on taxes on wealth. So that that's everything from net wealth to inheritance to property to land to all the tax breaks associated with it. So that's your first port of call. On labor taxes, which includes income taxes, we felt that the best that the best way to go would be to start expunging and get getting rid of tax breaks, for example. So rather than increasing rates necessarily, we focused on well, how do you clean up the system to make it make it sure that so that people are actually paying those rates. Alongside that we focused on increasing social insurance. So things like PRSI. So obviously we have to pay for an aging population. The logical way to do that is to do, do through social insurance. We have a pay-as-you-go system. So the quicker we can increase social insurance payments, the less of the burden we'll have to put on future generations. Again, it's this issue of intergenerational equity. If we increase PRSI now, those people in their 50s and early 60s, as they retire, they will be making an increased contribution to that. If we don't do it now, PRSI will have to be higher in the future, again, putting the burden even higher on the younger generation. We also called for increased taxes on things like pollution uh, and areas like that. Obviously, carbon tax, we have to look at the sequencing there is very important, and we have to ensure that this transition and that lower income households are, are not affected. Uh, and we had a lot of other ideas on the welfare side for how you would actually best protect households. But in terms of income tax, it wasn't necessarily one of the areas we went particularly strong on. In terms of labor taxation, it was more the PRSI element of that. Uh, so self-employed PRSI, employed PRSI, PAYE PRSI, rather than income tax per per se. But we certainly made no call for cutting taxes. Uh, in fact, the document is really, really clear that taxes overall would have to go up 
and, and that's even before you talk about crisis in housing or healthcare or public transport or paying for the net zero net zero transition. We're an aging population uh, that's going to cost us an extra seven to eight billion per annum by 2030. So we just have to increase taxes just to do that if we did nothing else at all. So the idea is so these tax cuts that we're talking about now or that some people are talking about are really, really unhelpful. And I think that the interesting thing is the question of, you know, what is the public response to this? And it seems to be, I think, and, and actually opinion polls have been showing for over five years that each at each budget that actual, the major, actually the majority of people want investment in public services rather than tax cuts. That I think one of the kind of lessons that people learned through austerity and the cuts and the crash was we need public services because when it comes to it, I can't rely on continuing to pay private health insurance. I need a public health system. We need, um, you know, public services. We need, um, you know, the list is so long, you know, child uh, therapy supports. We need disability supports. You know, we need a properly funded public service and the public system is the way to do it. Um, pardon? Mental health is another area. Mental health, absolutely. You know, and that the, the idea that cutting taxes, people, I think now realize that when you say cutting taxes, cutting taxes means cutting public services. And yeah. I think that, that that's true. And that it's not like this idea of putting a few pence in your pocket is not actually real. No, it, it doesn't it, have a it, real impact on your life. It won't have a real impact on on the vast majority of people. So, for example, the only people that would benefit from this cut in income tax are middle and high earners. So we know from the last budget that somebody on 25,000 got almost nothing from the government's tax package. So low-paid workers aren't going to benefit from this at all. And and in fact, you're right. The vast majority of people emphasize public services because we know we have the chronic deficiencies in, in a number of areas. The best way to put... Uh, to to reduce the cost of living is actually to reduce the user costs of public services across across the board. So you've no you've no GP to pay for. You've you've free public transport. You've genuinely free education. You've childcare that's only that you've childcare that's massively subsidised or free nursing homes that are free. All of these things. So, I, I, but you look at that one quarter of the population that maybe do want tax cuts, and of course they tend to disproportionately be the people that will benefit from these income tax cuts. So again, they represent a, a particular political faction, uh, and I mean that's how political economy works. And while while they're in power, they will push for that. So yeah. it's not really surprising to me. They will disproportionately yeah. benefit. The rest of us will lose out. That's political. Yeah, economy. yeah, absolutely, it is. And, and what is interesting is that those who are in power and positions of influence in Ireland, part of the ancien regime, are. <laughs> People who are in their fifties and sixties who are in privileged positions and hold high likely incomes. to hold, huh? With high incomes, who will benefit from with high incomes, incomes. and that's part of the problem that they hold the positions of power at the moment, and there's a need for a, a complete change in that. Yeah, it, it suggests affirmative action in terms of having obviously gender, of course, but 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 also for people under a certain age, so that, so that the parliament is genuinely representative of Irish society. So we have a, a gerontocracy increasingly in a lot of European countries and indeed in places like Japan, where the older population is growing in power because there's more of them. Uh, so as the population continues to grow, we're going to increasingly get policies that benefit 
older people. Uh, and of course, nobody's saying that, that, that the basic pension shouldn't be adequate. Of course it should. And it should be higher again. And, and they should have gotten more in, in, in the last budget. What we're saying is that overall, there needs to be a policy regime change so that younger voices are increasingly heard in the debate. How often do we hear people under the age of 40 on, on the radio? Vanishingly rare. How often do we see them in the parliament? It's, it's vanishingly low. Um, so those voices are not there and they're not being heard. And therefore, the housing crisis is not being dealt with. And there's a disparity. So, for example, we've gone to a place now where old age payments, for, for example, gen- generally get reasonably decent increases year on year. They didn't last year, but most years they do. Whereas working age payments, on the other hand, tend to fall behind and payments for people with disabilities, uh, lone parents. These are people that maybe don't, don't, have an, don't have many articulate voices that gain space on the media and therefore their concerns are not represented in the public debate. So we don't have a fair debate. Yourself, yourself, yourself excluded, of course, Rory and, and a few other uh, fine, fine contributors. But that is part of the problem. That is the political economy, power relationships that work in favor of particular groups and therefore they tend to disproportionately benefit. And again, that's what this debate about income tax cuts is all about. It's about the rich getting in there early, reframing the debate. So it's about tax cuts, even though there's probably not an economist in the land, left or right, except for a small minority that actually thinks that's a good idea. Just on that, you bring me to uh, economists. What did you think of Michael D's uh, uh, tirade against the the economists and economics profession? Now, I didn't get a chance to read it in detail, so I am going on reports. Maybe you read it in detail. I don't know. Um, but what what's your response as an economist? Well, again, I haven't read it in detail. You'd be offended, I'm sure. <laughs> I haven't read it in detail, so I can't, couldn't possibly be deeply offended. What I would say is that I think I think debate is really really healthy. We do need to have these ongoing uh, dialogues, whereby there's no kind of doctrinaire tablets that are brought down from the mountain said this is the right way to run an economy. We have to have an ongoing debate. And yes, it's true. Some economists got very very uh, annoyed, uh, but maybe maybe that's a good thing too. We need to have that debate. Certainly, economics as it's taught now is not quite the same as it was in the 1990s when Milton Friedman and Robert Lucas were running roughshod. Uh, and and I remember being being in class in uh, oh a couple of decades ago now and being told that look, economics is over, macroeconomics is has finished. Robert Lucas and Milton Friedman have figured it all out. I don't think you would get away with saying that now. I think it has improved, but I, I think like all disciplines, it needs to be always aware of itself, all, all, always aware of its own uh, biases. And if it engages with those biases in, in a fair in a fair way, I, I think I, I think that's great. We look, it, it's a social science, just like sociology, just like partially geography to a certain extent, just like political science. And therefore, there's always going to be a political economy component to it. So, so it is always going to be partially ideological. It's never going to be like physics. But as long as we can have that debate, I think that's very healthy. Uh, so from that point of view, I think what the president did was actually quite helpful. But in, in the sense, though, that, again, I suppose it's e- economists in position. If you're saying it's starting to be taught differently now at some level, um. Still, it would be fair to say, would it not, that the dominant ideological and theoretical frameworks of economists 
would be broadly neoclassical market dominated frameworks. Yeah, I think in, in, in undergraduate classes in particular, that is often what you are first taught. Uh, and you're first taught that actually because it, it's easy to model. So you've got your supply and demand curve. It's all the supply and demand. Yeah, and you can show that if you increase a tax, it creates an inefficiency, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the state is inefficient. Yeah, the state is inefficient because obviously markets never break down like in 29 or 2008 or all of the various ways that we've seen. The thing or is during COVID. Or during, or during COVID for that, for that matter because the state had no role in, in, in keeping the economy going. Or the provision of housing. Or the provision of housing, indeed. So, the, so or the provision of healthcare, or the provision of healthcare, or childcare. But remember, the market's the best. Market's the most efficient way of delivery. Oh, yeah. Despite constantly failing in many ways, <laughs> we're, we're we're still the best. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But um, I suppose when you get to master's level and beyond, it does tend to become more heterodox. Let's say, um, but there are a, a lot of book textbooks that, that people people could read. So Hajun Chang obviously does a very good overview of all the different schools of economics. Well, not all of them, but some of them. I, I think it's, he's very fair in, in how he treats it. So his books, I, I would certainly recommend. There are better textbooks that are out there now. But yeah, you're, you're right. Generally, the basic frame tends to be the kind of neo classic, neoclassical Washington consensus type thing. Although I think for professional economists, there's probably vanishingly few that actually buy into the Washington consensus. The problem is, Often people are only exposed to one or two years of economics, and it's that basic, really, really simplified market is best stuff that you that you tend to get. They tend to actually be people who only look a little bit at economics, such as in business schools and so forth, and not really focus on economics as a discipline. But unfortunately, that's that's usually what people take away when they think of economics. But broadly speaking, I don't think economists as a group of people would be particularly right-leaning necessarily. Um, and I think it's much more complicated in in terms of their viewpoints than in terms of what we're, in terms of what we study. It, it's often it's often much more micro. For example, uh, it's it's also it's often focused on on the intricacies of particular things. But this kind this kind of market is best mantra I think is is massively simplified, and 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 very very few economists outside of Austrian economists believe that with a kind of an ideological. I don't know, Tom. Come on now. You look at the all the think tanks, you look at the central banks, you look at the you know, the the writings. If you spoke to most economists, they would say the market is the most efficient allocator of resources. Well, a, a lot of those think tanks tend to be funded by right-wing groups uh, and, and obviously, obviously stockbroker houses or banking economists. All those they would guys say that there's no alternative to capitalism. Well, what is what is capitalism? I mean, capitalism, the allocation of capital, the state can do that too. I mean, Ireland is a mixed economy, so it's it's a case of well, do you want capitalism for hairdressers? Do you want a capitalism for education? Maybe there's different answers to those two questions. Um, but so the, the dominant, the dominant, um, like they grudgingly accept the state's involvement in certain areas and the non-profit sector's involvement and the non-market sector. But they would argue that the market is best, and the market is the best allocator. Like, well, I can only speak for myself, but I think what Manny would say is that it's it all depends. I mean, very few, I think, would say that the market is best for education, the market is best for healthcare. We can see in the United States what an absolute disaster marketized healthcare 
is there. And actually, one I of think the you've been very kind to your profession. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. <laughs> maybe just a degree of solidarity there. But but I can certainly tell you there are a lot of economists, uh, myself included, who have a much more nuanced and differentiated view from what uh, Michael D. perhaps thinks uh, of the economics profession as, as a block. We're absolutely not a monolith. There is an ongoing debate. There is there, there is a fight going on in terms of what is what is best. Uh, it depends on the sector. It depends. It depends upon the context. But any economist, and we who tells you the market is is always right, is essentially yeah. is essentially a dogmatist and a fundamentalist, and is probably being propped up by some right wing think tanks. Yeah, and what of course the biggest market failure is climate change. You know, well, the failure to internalize the costs of the externalities of we're destroying the environment it doesn't matter. It doesn't come into our market models. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and this is why we need uh, an industrial policy of a global scale, a, a la Mazzucata, uh, kind of a moonshot. But this, this is where, this is the classic example of, of a failure of, of the commons, of the state needing to intervene and essentially, essentially lead on this. So that means, for example, infrastructure spending, investment spending, rather than tax cuts, we should be, we, we should, we should be spending on retrofitting, on greening, uh, energy infrastructure, on finding a just transition for farmers, on increasing public transport, all of these things, all of which are going to require enormous state, state investment, not just in Ireland, but but all throughout the world. So I agree with you, Rory. We should absolutely be doing all of those it, things. It's interesting because like, I did modules in economics. I studied economics in Trinity, um, and I don't talk about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> You're an economics grad yourself, Rory. Well, there you go. I am. <laughs> Um, I did uh, two years of economics with uh, France, uh, Professor Francis Rowan taught me um, on the econo- macroeconomics. And of course, I also had PJ Drudy teaching me economics, which of course was a very different viewpoint on economics. Um, and I also had Danny McCoy teaching me environmental economics, would you believe? Um, and the externalities and demand supply and how the environment, uh, of course, his point of view, you know, was a very, very market orientated perspective. Um, but even, I, you know, when I think back to then, it's interesting. I think you're right that there has always been a critical economics. And, you know, PJ Judy would have been a very good example of that. Um, and an economics that looked at it. Of course, Marx was an economist, a political economist, um, and a critical perspective on the economy. Um, but they have been at the margins of the economics profession. And I think probably Michael D., uh, the president, could have put it differently and framed it differently and framed it as a dominance of the neoclassical, neoliberal school within economics. And that the change, you know, that model has and that theory and that way of teaching and understanding the economy has completely failed in terms of climate inequality and therefore those other frameworks, whether they be Keynesian, whether they be Marxist, whether they be post-Keynesian, that they're the ones that need to be brought back central. Yeah, and I think within the academy, within universities, there is kind of a fairly eclectic mixture in a lot of economics departments. I can't speak for all, but in terms of policymakers at an institutional level, for example, at the European Commission, at many central banks, I, t- I think your criticism, or I think the president's critique is is fair. They haven't moved on, uh, and 
the sad thing is it's probably likely to be a generation before the new thinking uh, filters through into decision makers. What is interesting, though, is that the European Commission's reaction to COVID was so different to its reaction to the great financial crash. So the reaction yeah. to the financial crash was austerity now. There is no alternative. We will cro- The beatings will continue until morale improves. Uh, it's, it's all recklessness by the state. Whereas rea- the response to COVID was this enormous state intervention of historically unpre- that was historically unprecedented outside of wars, where we will protect households, we will maintain that glue between the employer and the employee. We li- we will increase social welfare rates beyond adequacy payments. We will do all of these things, and we will have this enormous and very very swift moonshot in terms of in, term- in, in terms of vaccines. So the state. Uh, re- reaction and response at a European level and an Irish level was completely different. So we did learn things. So it's possible for economists and policymakers to learn and, and perhaps be a little bit more humble. Now, unfortunately, we were not likely to get the kind, kind of reforms we need in terms of the EU fiscal rules. It's still going to be all about stick, rudder and carrot. Uh, that's disappointing. It probably won't be as uh, as crazy a debate as it was back in 2010, 2012. When we were coming up with ideas, Rory, but it's still not good. It's still problematic, and of course, that's political economy between countries. Whereas the G- Germany may have a very different viewpoint to France, but that's more politics than economics. There's no, there's no cacophony of economists calling for keeping the fiscal rules as they are. In fact, they're often calling for them to change because they're insane. By and large, it's yeah. a policymaker and a political problem ultimately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's many. There's a growing, I would argue, and you know, and and I'm sure you could point to some people if they're interested. Alternative economics based on the circular economy, circular economy, uh, K. Rayworth and mm. the donut economics. Is there others if people are interested in reading on alternative economics who would be good? Yeah, Kate is, Kate is a very good one in terms of all of that. I, I think it's it's a perspective that's well worth engaging with. And uh, it, it depends. There's a lot of good bloggers out there. So, I mean, you, you could talk about the likes of Torsten Bell working for the Resolution Foundation in the United Kingdom. In Ireland, I would encourage people to look at Michael Tass' notes on the front blog, of course. Uh, so there's a lot of good stuff out there in Ireland, of course. There's, there's Task and Social Justice Ireland. Or there's ourselves that are all maybe worth looking at the websites thereof. Uh, so there are, there are voices. There are critical voices within Ireland. I could keep going. Really, um, but in terms of uh, the econ- the economics debate itself, uh, I mean, where would you be? Where would you kind of stop? I suppose is kind of the real question. I would say that Kate Rayward is a very good place to start. I think it's a good way of reframing uh, what it means in terms of well being and in terms of sustainability. And really, I think where we need to go in terms of economic thinking is to say that. Let's rethink what economic growth is. Economic growth, as understood by economists, is you've got the same number of inputs and you, and you can increase the number of outputs or use less inputs and get the same number of outputs. What we really, really want is we want to increase the well-being for everyone in an inclusive way in society in a way that is sustainable in terms of biodiversity, replenishment, and in terms of not destroying the planet. Yeah, yeah, so That yeah. means we need a more nuanced and complex set of policy prescriptions. So the market is best. This is the efficiency that you will get. That is only 
that that may be true in terms of burnishing economic growth, but of course that economic economic growth can be very unequally distributed and can be extremely damaging when it doesn't take into account uh, biodiversity loss and so forth. So what it, what it, what we need to have is a proper conversation, but what deals which which deals with things like social cohesion, which deals with art how are we going to deal with artificial intelligence? Never mind the green green transition. What's that going to mean in terms of job losses? And for the first time, this this fourth industrial revolution will be different to, to the first three because the first three industrial revolutions hit uh, ha- hands hit hit manufacturing workers by and large or people that use their hands. This industrial revolution is hitting white collar workers for the first time. And that's going to be very, very interesting in terms of the debate. And that may be very interesting in terms of what we what we want in the future in terms of fulfilling and worthwhile jobs. What does it mean for the welfare state? So we need to have a, an ongoing debate in that way. And look, obviously, there's a lot of other important thinkers out there, such as Mary Murphy, for example, who's just released a very interesting book on socialism and a lot of other people that you could talk to. So Sean Arian, for example, in the sociology department in Manute too is a very important thinker as well in terms of industrial policy, for example. And then you've, you've, you've there's other good books out there by the likes of Dave Jacobson, uh, Paul Sweeney as well, that are often worth listening to on these issues. And, and I know certainly the NERI ourselves, we're, we're currently did try, trying to develop a strategy for, for workers in terms of how do we manage this just transition uh, over the next 10, 20 years with all of these enormous transformations that are about to happen. How do we develop a new economic model? What are the things that we care about, and how do we do that? Uh, and yeah, and yeah, to come to come to come full circle, yeah, no, the market clearly is failing in enormous and profound ways and devastating ways for households. And clearly, housing, Rory, is probably the one that really is hitting 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 home with people at the moment. Just how badly uh, the market if handles things if left to itself. So we will need a radical policy shift in that area, for example, a game changer, if you like. Just like we do in a lot of other areas. Brilliant, Tom. Thanks so much for that. Um, great, great chat. Great conversation. So much in it. Our listeners know. I know our listeners will have got a huge, huge amount out of it. Um, and if people want to read more on the Nevin Economic Research Institute, they can check you out at neary.ie. Is it dot net and your institute? Net. Is that dot net still exist? Does it? <laughs> it does for it does for us. <laughs> There's a there's a few places you can get us. Neary.net sounds fab. Net. I know it's uh, you know we we should probably change that address, but uh, that that creates its own complications. Neryinstitute.net is how you can get us. Uh, we're online and we blog and we have a Twitter account and all 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 usual things. So. Yeah, and lots of reports and things, and you'll be producing as well. You produce. Are you still doing the quarterly um, economic analysis, or we do? We've cut it down into more digestible reports that we we kind of do every three or four months. So the usual seventy six pagers. We're trying to cut down to to more manageable fifteen page blocks now that 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 might be more accessible to a wider audience. So that's what we're going to do. And obviously, in the lead up to the budget, in we think early October. We'll be doing a lot of commentary starting really from from July on what's a good idea, what's a bad idea, what's an awful idea, and maybe front front to think about how best we can handle budgets in the future and maybe what we ought to do. Uh, so keep a lookout on our website from really July onwards, and hopefully we'll have a lot of interesting content, which will hopefully give people food for thought. 
Absolutely. No, for definite. And thanks so much for all your work. Uh, it's really, really important to have that, um, you know, alternative approaches and thinking. And we will definitely have you back on before the uh, before the budget again. Thanks, Rory. We, we, appreciate, we appreciate being on. Yeah, great. Tom McDonald, Director of the Nevin Economic Research Institute, um, doing brilliant work there on alternative economics analysis, ideas for social change, environmental change through a different economic approach um, and highlighting the what what is working, what is not. So check them out, the Nevin Economic Research Institute. And again, thank you so much to all our listeners. We appreciate so much um, the comments and feedback and also those who are patrons, who are supporters of the podcast. We are an independent media. We completely rely on you listeners who support us. You can become a supporter, which is essentially signing up for whatever you can, five or ten or a month. Um, and it's over on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. And that covers the cost of production. Please, please, if you can consider becoming a patron of Reboot Republic, which is uh, produced by Tony Groves of Tortoise Shack Media. Um, and as always, we ask you, if you can share the podcast around, uh, let others know you're listening. And we really um, appreciate that. And yeah, we will talk to you all very, very soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>